Lord, we want to receive from you today a word in season, a word that is apt for us, that will bring encouragement, that will bring blessing, instruction. And I pray, Lord, that uh, the meditations of my heart might be something acceptable, first of all, to you and then to your people, and that we will not be hearers of the word, but we will be doers of it. And so, Lord, empower, anoint with your Holy Spirit now, and I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, who is the most religious person you know? Who's the most religious person you know? Would it be someone who goes to many places of worship? I have a friend who went to four places of worship, same day. He went to a Catholic church, and then he went to a mosque, and then he went to a Chinese temple, and then he went to a Hindu temple on the same day. How religious was he? Would you say that he's very religious? But you will be wondering, why did he do that? Well, on the 19th of December, 1997, he was scheduled to fly back from Indonesia on Silk Air MI 185. And you know what happened on that flight? It crashed. 100, 104 people died. But he missed the flight. His business meeting ended late and he was so frustrated that the meeting ended late and he could not fly back to Singapore to his wife and a very young, less than a year old child. So frustrated, but he missed that flight. In fact, seven people, he was told later, missed that flight and they were saved. And so what did he do? On the 20th of December, 1997, he went to these four places of worship and he gave thanks. He gave thanks to an unknown God. I communicated with him recently. He is still, um, well, I would say agnostic. He doesn't believe in any, any God per se. And he wrote to me and he said, I give thanks to my lucky stars for not dying on MI185. Today's text brings us to Athens in Greece, where there was a shrine to an unknown god. The Apostle Paul was in Athens and he was awaiting the arrival of his co-laborers Silas and Timothy. So he's there uh, alone and his job was just to wait. But he was walking around town and he began ministry. He reasoned with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks in the synagogue. And then he reasoned with the Gentiles in the marketplace. And he was greatly distressed to see the city of Athens full of idols. And then the Gentiles, the non-Jews, brought him to this place called Areopagus, which is here in Greece. It's Areopagus is the, um, the Latin name for the Greek equivalent of this word called Mars Hill. Mars, the god of war, if I'm not wrong. And this was a place which was like a, a court or a court for debate. And I've been told that Socrates was charged there and was sentenced to death in Areopagus. And the Gentiles were intrigued with what Paul had to say about this person called Jesus and especially about this phenomenon called resurrection. And it was the favorite pastime 
of the Greeks. And all the Athenians, if you read in Acts chapter 17, verse 21, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. And Athens was the capital of philosophy where uh, 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 Aristotle and Plato came from. Athens was the cradle of democracy. Forms of democracy was already practiced in the year 550 BC. 550 BC, they had some form of democracy. It was also the city of idolatry, as Paul tells us, with the whole pantheon of Greek gods. You know, in, in the Greek pantheon, there are 12 major gods, and then there are like hundreds and thousands of offsprings of gods and combinations and, and maybe mutations even. So there are thousands of gods. And effectively, these were the three religions, the three major religions that confronted Paul. Phariseeism, I will call it, Epicureanism, and Stoicism. Okay, today we're going to get a little bit technical and philosophical. I know the, the Singaporeans like to say philosophy. Um, Phariseeism, that's a mutated form of Judaism. Okay, where the, the Jews and the God-fearing uh, Greeks who uh, worship the, the Jewish God, they study the scriptures, but they refuse to believe that Jesus was the Savior. In fact, they couldn't even see it. And instead, this religion, Phariseeism, I call it, you can call it Judaism, but that's not, not quite so accurate, degenerated into what I would call nitpicking, increasingly nitpicking rules. The second one is Stoicism that is recorded in Acts chapter 17. Stoicism is a school of Greek philosophy founded in Athens in the early 3rd century BC. And they taught against destructive emotions in a sense that humans should not have emotions which are destructive and that the person of moral and intellectual perfection should not suffer from destructive emotions and therefore they put on what is called a stoic calm, right? If you say somebody is very stoic in spite of going through terrible uh, circumstances, they are very stoic. They don't show any emotions. And true happiness is stoic calm. And the Stoics believe that God is in everything and everything is God. It's, it's almost like Hinduism and, and what is called pantheistic, right? Everything is God. And life is meant to be endured. Stoic, endured. And life is purely utilitarian. So what happens when Stoicism is pursued to its ultimate conclusion? You will get somebody like the modern-day philosopher called Peter Singer, who is still living. And Peter Singer calls himself a humanistic, stoic atheist. So what does Peter Singer represent? Okay, he, i give you a few quotes from him. This is Peter Singer, still living. And he will say something like this. If one baby is disabled, does it not make sense to kill it and replace it with one who is not disabled and therefore has a better chance for happiness? When the death of the disabled infant leads to the birth of another infant with better prospects of a happy life, the total amount of happiness will be greater if the disabled infant is killed. 
utilitarian. The, the Straits Times, uh, a few days ago, reviewed a book, I believe maybe it was last Sunday or something, called Against Fairness. And it talked about Peter Singer. The question was, if your sick father asks you to visit him on the same evening, a powerful friend asks you to dinner. Who would you favor? Peter Singer's reply, I will choose by listing how much utility or benefit each one of these gives me. I think likely, likely, the powerful friend will give him more benefit. What can a sick father give him? And so that is stoicism led to its ultimate conclusion. Pure utilitarianism. Okay, the next one is called Epicureanism. Okay, it's referred to in Acts chapter 17. And this is based on the teachings of a guy called Epicurus, also founded in 300 BC or so, where the philosophy or the religion is pleasure is the greatest good. So my life philosophy as an Epicurean is to maximize pleasure and to minimize pain. And the philosophy there is that if there is a God, then it is a God far, far removed from us, and this God is not interested in human affairs. And everything happens by chance, because God has no connection with humans. And what happens when you pursue Epicureanism to its ultimate conclusion? You will get somebody like uh, the heavy-drinking, heavy-smoking atheist called Christopher Hitchens. Christopher Hitchens is one of the... the he's a titled guy, you know? He's not the four heavenly kings of uh, uh, Hong Kong singers. He's the four horsemen. He's the four horsemen, you know, in Revelations, four horsemen of the apocalypse. He is one of the four horsemen of the new atheism. He calls himself an Epicurean. Christopher Hitchens calls himself an Epicurean. Actually, he doesn't say that he's an atheist. He says, I am an anti-theist. I'm not just a person who does not believe in God. I'm a person who is against God. So he's an anti-theist. And let me give you a quote from Christopher Hitchens, who looks like this. Christopher Hitchens made some comments about the younger George Bush. And I thought this was so classic. He says, George W. Bush is lucky to be governor of Texas. He is unusually incurious. That means the guy is not curious about anything. He's abnormally unintelligent. He's amazingly inarticulate. He's fantastically uncultured. He's extraordinarily uneducated and apparently quite proud of all these things. I guess by him giving George Bush maximum pain from his tongue, it gives him maximum pleasure, right? As an Epicurean. And what he says is, to me, to me, George, uh, uh, Christopher Hitchens, what matters most is the pursuit of happiness or the pursuit of pleasure. And so we have this three, Phariseeism, where God is an angry, rule-giving policeman, and we have Stoicism, where everything is God and therefore nothing is God really. And, and therefore, you just maximize utility to yourself. And then you have Epicureanism, where if there is a God, this God is not interested in human affairs and everything is random. He's not interested in me, I'm not interested in him. Therefore, I pursue pleasure. And this was the background to Paul's sermon on Mars Hill, on Areopagus, which we will now read in Acts chapter 17, 
from verses 22 to 34. So let's read Acts chapter 17 from verse 22 to 34. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands, as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or, or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent, for He has set a day when He would judge the world with justice by the man He has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. And when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At this, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman called Damaris, and a number of others. Uh, a famous um, teacher, a theologian, F.F. Bruce, called this passage an introductory lesson in Christianity for cultured pagans. You know, if, if Paul had the benefit of PowerPoint, he would put up this uh, slide on, on, on the side of Mars Hill. And it's a classic three-point sermon. That first of all, God is creator. God created us. We don't create idols to represent him. God is the creator and his creation is for us the created to steward and to enjoy. His second PowerPoint would be God is sovereign, that he determines the time and the exact places where we should live so that men might seek him and find him even though he's not very far from us. And his third PowerPoint would be God is judge. That, but he shows mercy by calling us to repent before the Savior who died and who was resurrected for us. But unfortunately, Paul did not use PowerPoint, but his three points are powerful and they are to the point. In addition, he preached using contemporary quotes and examples. And his philosophy of preaching is also explained in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 
from verse 22, where he says, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then again in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22, he says, To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. And that's how he approached the unbelieving Greeks in Athens. And you will see that his sermon in Acts chapter 17 was very, very different from some of his earlier sermons uh, to the Jews because he even used quotes from non-Christian uh, uh, sources you know, where we read, for in him we live and move and have our being. This came from a poem by uh, Epimenides the Cretan, with 600 years before Christ. Um, and, and let me read it for the sake of the recording. Okay, they fashion a tomb for thee, O high and holy one, a holy and high one. The Cretans, always liars, evil beasts, idle bellies, which is quoted in another portion of scripture. But thou art not that thou livest and abidest forever. And this is the line that he used. For in thee we live and move and have our being. And then he, he quoted a, a second poem uh, written by a guy called Aratus, 300 years before Christ, which says, let us begin with Zeus. Can you imagine he quote a poem that, quotes, uh, uh, that mentions Zeus, the, the, the biggest god of the Greek pantheon. Let us begin with Zeus. Never, O man, let us leave him unmentioned. All the ways are full of Zeus and all the marketplace of human beings. The sea is full of him. So are the harbors. In every way, we have all to do with Zeus for we are truly his offspring. And that was the verse that he quoted. For we are truly his offsprings. And so we come back to how Paul began this sermon. Paul began this sermon by, by, by standing up in a meeting of this council and he said, men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. So he begs the question, what is religious? What is true religion? Have you seen this? Have you seen this true religion? It's, it's, it's a brand name for t-shirt and jeans. Of course, they put a little fat man there representing some kind of religion. It's a brand name. I, I know that at least one person here wears it. I've seen it before in this church. But some of you may not know about it. And it's quite a clever line, you know. Because you know how they, they promote this? So they get people like Serena Williams, right? The tennis champion. And they say, Serena Williams finds true religion. Because she wears the jeans. Uh, I have some other, other models of jeans, but they are too sexy to show in church. But I think, wouldn't it be great if all of us here wears a t-shirt true religion, that maybe next time our PPH t-shirt would not be the boring logo that we have, but true religion. True religion. And Paul addressed this in his sermon in Acts 17. Creator God, sovereign God, God the judge. But we need to refer to another apostle or to other portions of the scripture to get a full picture of what is true religion. Next week, uh, Richard Chai is going to be speaking about the full counsel of God. And that's what it means. You look, you don't, you don't pick up one or two verses from, from one passage and then develop uh, a doctrine on it. You look at full counsel of God, 
from Genesis to Revelation. And so I searched in my fantastic software, Bible software, religion, and I found that there was no such word in the Hebrew Old Testament. Okay, in some English versions, there is religion, but it means feast. Okay, so in the original Hebrew, there's no such word for religion. But in other parts of the New Testament, there is use, uh, this word religion. And I think it is helpful. It, it tells us, it gives us a, a fuller picture of what true religion is. And that can be found in James chapter 1 from verse 26. And James, the apostle, says, If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Very instructive verses. Another time, it's Paul himself writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 4. He says, But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents for this is pleasing to God. So let's do a comparison of what religion is. True religion. When we look at Phariseeism, it's like you've got to do a lot. You've got to do this and do that and do this and do that. Because they had, they had expanded God's Ten Commandments into 613 rules and then they added on some more, uh, making 1,521 addition to these rules. So there were thousands of rules to do, do, do. And then let's take a look at Stoicism and uh, Epicureanism. And that one is like you talk a lot, talk a lot, talk a lot, kind of like what I'm doing right now. You know? Talk a lot about philosophy. And, and verse 21, Acts 17 tells us, they spend their time doing nothing but talk, 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 and listen to the latest ideas. Let's look again at Phariseeism. And it is a club of conceit, okay, if I, I want to put it that way, because they felt that they were the chosen race. God has chosen them and God will bless them and no one else. And, and the, the word conceit is excessive pride in one's ability. In this case, excessive pride in one's race. And they forgot, they totally forgot that when God blessed them, they were to be a blessing to the nations. So we have this club of conceit in Phariseeism. What about Stoicism? I would call them uh, a calculated convenience because it was a religion of convenience. What is good for me? What is of utility to me? And I calculate it. I can calculate between having dinner with my sick father and I can calculate uh, with, uh, uh, that of having dinner with Warren Buffett or Lee Kuan Yew or somebody. Which one would advance your career, give you more utility? And then Epicureanism is simply Maximize pleasure, minimize pain. So that would be kind of the comparison uh, that I would look at. And if we are not careful, we can be Christian Pharisees. We can be Christian Stoics and Christian Epicureans. Don't we sometimes feel like we are so safely ensconced in this Sunday club that we come here every Sunday with a passport to heaven? Praise the Lord. Aircon, comfortable, nice friends, 
nice coffee break, passport to heaven, what more do you want? And from the safety of this Sunday club, we point fingers and we judge everybody. You know that guy, uh, oh my goodness, this guy worship idols and spend all his money burning incense. These guys, they don't know what they... And, and then that guy and, and this and all oh, that is only pursuing pleasure and, and this guy visits prostitutes and oh, we judge everybody. A Christian Pharisee. Or our Sunday club here can be a religion of convenience where the end justifies the means because everyone is doing it. Everybody is stealing time from the office to play Candy Crush. Why can't I? And everybody is stealing office supplies and bringing home to use. Why can't I? Everybody adds about half an hour to his parking coupon. Why can't I? Or we can have the Epicurean motto in this Sunday club. We seek first our happiness and maximum pleasure and more will be added unto us in health and wealth. Instead of Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. So can you see? It is easily, easily twisted. But now, let's look at Christianity. Okay, Christianity is where it is done. It is done. You don't have to work for your salvation because you are never going to be good enough for God. Let's get it in our mind. We're just not good enough for God. And please don't talk too much. And uh, Let me talk that, about that to myself. Because it is done. Christ's work on the cross is done. Christ gave His life once for all, bore the punishment, took our sins away, saved us from our sins. And let's take a closer look at James 1 and 1 Timothy 5 that we read earlier. It points to consecration of self and it points to caring for others. It mentions widows and orphans, the needy. It mentions parents and grandparents, the family. I think these are the two things, the needy and the family. And Paul's sermon in Acts 17 ought to do something to our heart when he tells us that God made us, God loves us, God saves us, and how we respond to this love is then further fleshed out in, for example, here, James 1, 1 Timothy 5. And therefore, we respond to God loving us, God saving us. We respond with the compassion of Christ. And so true religion is not about rules. True religion is not even about the Ten Commandments. Or true religion definitely isn't about talking a lot like the men of Athens. It is about consecration. It is about caring for others, the needy, the family. And so my message today boils down to just one point. Do you care? You know, do you care? Well, regarding the religious, I guess you cannot be more religious than, for example, uh, a Christian preacher or a Christian apologist, somebody like Ravi Zacharias, a very, very famous uh, preacher and apologist. Defending the faith day in, day out, defending the faith, arguing, reasoning like Paul in many universities that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus saves us. Once after a lecture and a debate uh, in a university, his wife was driving one of the listeners back who was an unbeliever and a doctor. So the wife was driving this doctor friend, unbeliever back, and she asked her, the friend, 
what do you think of my husband's talk and debate? And this doctor friend said, very, very persuasive. But I wonder what he is like in his personal life. I mean, if you're the wife, if Angeline were to ask somebody and somebody, oh, oh, he's perfect in his personal life. You see, it's not the ideas of the man. And Ravi Zacharias is, is articulate, defends the gospel well, but the man behind the ideas. What is he like in his personal life? Paul Johnson, a historian, uh, who wrote this book called Intellectuals. And let me quote from him. He says, Above all, we must at all times remember what intellectuals habitually forget, that people matter more than concepts and must come first. The worst of all despoticisms is the heartless tyranny of ideas. And I think that was the trap that the men of Athens fell into. They just talk and talk and talk about ideas and they get very excited about it. It could be for us too. We study the Bible more and more and fantastic ideas and fantastic doctrines, but we forget the man. This was what confronted Paul in Athens. That the ideas of the love of God and the love for man simply too Two simple ideas got mutated into 1,521 editions of rules that the Jews must follow. That the ideas of philosophies, of stoicism and epicureanism degenerated into utilitarianism and just a simple hedonism, the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. And you do nothing but talk. Let me now end with something personal. Two weeks ago, a friend of mine invited me to lunch in Singapore's most expensive food court, he says. I let you figure out which food court that is. And there we met, I'll just call him Mr. Lee, okay? We'll call him Uncle Lee because he's 78 years old and he was clearing our tables as one of the cleaners. And this friend of mine initiated a conversation with Uncle Lee. I wouldn't. I'm an extreme introvert. If I eat, I just eat. I don't want to... But my friend, different personality, talked to this old man, found out that his wife was sick, his daughter was sick, his granddaughter has cancer. That's why at 78 years old, he had to work as a cleaner, earning a few hundred bucks a month. And short lunch, I think about an hour, and then after that, I left. I left the most expensive food court in Singapore. And I drove my aircon car back to my aircon office. And I tried to forget about that conversation. I suffered for two days. Was I religious? Yes. I say grace at meals. And for goodness sake, my business card says senior pastor. Was I a Christian Pharisee? Yes. I judge all the time. What kind of garment do we have that has a 78-year-old man working as a cleaner with sick wife, sick, cho- sick daughter, sick granddaughter. What kind of a government does we have, do we have? And all these Christians and NGOs, they ought to be helping Uncle Lee. They should be doing something. Too bad he's not living in Teban Gardens, otherwise I can pass the buck to Roslyn and Alan Chua and they can take care of it. I was troubled for two days. Because I was a Christian stoic. After all, I can't help much. So inconvenient. 
my time and my money can be better spent preparing sermons on compassion and caring. So let's just be stoic about it because you cannot let this bother you too much, right? It messes with your emotions and your, and, and your mind and then you cannot function for two days. And Mr. Lee, he also needs to be stoic. Lah. Just calm. Just suffer. After all, life is meant to be endured. It's his fate. I was troubled for two days because I was a Christian Epicurean. Frankly, I don't want to hear his story. I mean, uncle, you come, you clear my, my table, you walk away, thank you very much. But my friend initiated this conversation and I found out his story. Because it causes me pain to hear these stories. I don't want to know. Frankly, I do not want to know. And I wish my friend weren't so friendly with him. It spoiled my lunch. It spoiled my next two days. Gave me pain. And so on the third day, I called my friend. I said, can you go downstairs during lunchtime and talk to this uncle and ask for his telephone number? Which he did. And so two Mondays ago, I, I visited this Uncle Lee. I went to his home. I didn't go into his home. I went down, we, we met downstairs. And then we went to have coffee in a coffee shop. Two hours I spent with him. And then I found out he, he used to live in a five-room flat in Kim Tian Road, but he got repossessed because he couldn't pay. His wife is sick. Uh, Cannot walk very well, so he buys breakfast for her before he goes to work. Uh, and breakfast is porridge eh? or congee with a lot of chili padi. <laughs> the wife likes it. His daughter actually got raped. And out of the rape came the granddaughter. Daughter has, has a heart disease, so unable to work full time. She can probably work several days a week, but currently no job. Just a nurse. The granddaughter has cancer. She's been out of school for over a year now. So I said, I'm a pastor. I gave him some money. And because it was very difficult for me to converse with, with him in, in Mandarin and all that. And he doesn't know a lot of details. I said, can I talk to your daughter? Uh, he, called, he called so many times. They say, no, 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 no. You don't come to my house because I'm living with my sister and the house is a mess. It's not my home, so it's not nice for me to bring a stranger into my sister's house. So I couldn't meet. But for, after two hours, the daughter came down with the granddaughter because they were going to KKH for a checkup for the granddaughter's cancer. And so we got to meet. We got to talk a little bit. And they were very, very thankful for the little bit of money that I gave. And he wanted to write me a, a, a thank you a receipt, he says. And I talked to the daughter for, for a short while, and you could sense the, the, the pride. It's like, thank you for the money, but actually, yeah, well, just thank you for the money. And, and both father and daughter had tears in the eyes, and there was some misunderstanding over a previous church that tried to help them. Wednesday night, I called him again, and I said, how are you, uncle? Oh, I'm so thankful. Oh, your, your, your $400 dollars 
really meant the world to us, you know. On that day, when my daughter brought the granddaughter to visit, we spent $700 on, $700 on the daughter, and, and it helped so much. I'm so thankful. Now I want to write you a note uh, addressed to you and to your friend and to say how much it, it meant to us. I said, can I talk to your daughter again? I need to find out the details. Maybe I can help. Say, no, la, we've been to the government, we've been to MP, and we've been to everybody. Nobody can help us now. Say, maybe I can, maybe I can. And, and that was where we stopped. Uh, I might give him an uh, occasional phone call now and then, and maybe the daughter will open up uh, later. I don't know. But that's all I did. Um, maybe musicians can, can come and uh, get, get ready. I don't know what your reaction uh, today is to what I've shared. What is your reaction to Paul's message? Very simple. God created us. God loves us. God is sovereign. He placed us in expensive food courts. And God is judge in the end. God calls us to repentance. In verse 32 of Acts 17, there were three reactions. The first reaction was derision. The people derided what Paul said. What is this? Resurrection, Jesus Christ. Maybe in, in here it's like, what God? What compassion? God helps those who help themselves for goodness sake. You are helping just to solve your own conscience. Or you are helping to create an illustration for your sermon. Derision, sneering, mockery. The second reaction in Mars Hill was deliberation. Paul, we want to hear more. We want to hear more. We want to hear you again. And so please do come to Sunday church again. Study the Bible yourself. Hear more, learn more about what true religion is. And please don't be like the men of Athens who do nothing but talk and talk and talk. And the third, the first was derision, the second was deliberation, the third is decision. Some made decision to follow Paul and to follow Christ. And I want us here to make a decision to practice true religion, to have the compassion of Christ, to consecrate ourselves in following Him. And I hope that no one here would deride. Some of us here will need to deliberate further. Please do that. But my encouragement to you is to decide. Follow Christ and follow Christ all the way, the true way of the true religion. And let me leave you with one challenge. What are you going to do when you meet the next needy person? Remember I said needy and family. What are you going to do to minister to your family, the needy and the family? It may happen sooner than you think. Today when you go to the food court, expensive, cheap, something may happen you may meet someone. I came across this song at the Global Day of Prayer, The Power of Your Name, and it just struck me. This is, I believe, the third time we can change the... This is the third time we are singing this. It, it's a real challenge to my faith. Me, the practicer of this Christian religion, you know, what am I inside? What, what am I inside? I mean, you can preach, you can read, but what am I inside? What are you inside? 
What is this true religion inside that must come out? And I hope this song will challenge you unto faith and good deeds. To go beyond religion, to go beyond the religion of Phariseeism, to go beyond the religion of Stoicism and Epicureanism. Why don't we rise and we sing this together? Hands and feet. I 
light that I've been given And go beyond religion See the world being changed I will live to carry out compassion To love a world that's broken Be your hands and feet I will give with the light that I've been given Go beyond religion See the world being changed By the power of your name By the power of your name By the power of your name Therefore, as God's chosen people holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And I pray that Paul's sermon of Acts 17 touches your heart. That God is creator. He's the one who created us to enjoy creation to steward this creation, but where, but it has been broken. And God is sovereign. He placed us in exact places where He wants us to be. And God is going to be judged with what He has blessed us with. Are we going to be Pharisees, Stoics, and Epicureans. God challenges us to practice true religion, to care for, to love widows and orphans, the needy, to care for, to love parents and grandparents, our family. Might be some of us here who have not visited our parents for months now. Or you have buried some deep hurts there, some unforgiveness. You're not in touch with your brother and sister. Repent. Repent and care for the family. Some of us here might be bothered for days now by a needy situation that you have seen or witnessed. I pray for God to show us wisdom we are not about to, to care for every needy person that we come across. But we cannot be caring for none. And so let's pray for wisdom. Where God has placed us in exact places, those are the ones that He wants us to care for. The needy and the family. And would you pray now? Would you pray that what breaks God's heart will break yours as well, that, that we will not be stoics, that our hearts cannot be so hardened. It's got to be soft before the Lord. It's got to be malleable. It's got to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. We cannot walk away from situations and say, don't care. Not my problem. And can you imagine an army of us, 300 of us, 
religious people going out into the world to practice true religion, can you imagine the impact? And what glory it will bring to church and what grace and love will be shared abroad in so many lives. So I encourage you to, to pray. What breaks God's heart will break ours. That we will clothe ourselves with compassion. It is a, a putting on compassion. And we will march out of here an army of 300 religious people and see what God will do through us by His grace. So Lord, thank you so much for your word to us this morning. I pray, Lord, that our hearts will be touched. It will be moved unto love and good deeds. And that this week, at least 300 people will be blessed in Jesus' name because of us, because of your love, because of your command, because of you placing where we are, because one day you will be judged. So thank you, Father, for your grace, for your love. And now we go in your name to bless a world that's broken. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.